When we last looked at John's gospel the week before Easter, we saw the first of Jesus' signs. Throughout this book, John highlights a series of seven signs through which Jesus displays his glory. That's how John describes the signs. Each of them shows us some aspect of who Jesus is, some aspect of his glory. The first sign involved Jesus miraculously providing wine at a wedding in Cana. And we saw the wine Jesus provided was not just ordinary, it'll do okay wine, it was the best wine. And that incident was about much more than just saving the bridegroom's blushes in front of his wedding guests. By providing the best wine, Jesus was displaying a truth about himself. He is the one who truly satisfies us. Every other source of satisfaction is a weak imitation of the satisfaction we find in him. If we're going to understand who Jesus is, we have to see him as the one who meets our deepest needs. The one who provides fuller joy than anything or anyone else can provide. That was the first sign. And now in our passage this morning, we learn another truth about Jesus. He is the Lord of our worship meaning he has authority over our worship, and he must be the focus of our worship. So let's read this, picking up at John chapter 2, verse 12, and reading down to verse 22. If you're using a Green Church Bible, it's page 1065, and in the larger print Bibles, 1649. John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, that's after the wedding in Cana, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? 
But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Worship is always a hot topic. I mean, in the church, it's always a hot topic. It might, in fact, be the biggest source of disagreements and fallouts in the church. We have a tough time even agreeing what we mean by worship. And into that perennial confusion comes this passage about worship. And first, it confronts us with the easily overlooked truth that Jesus has authority over our worship. We don't get to decide what's worship and what's not. We don't get to decide how we worship. Jesus decides. He is the Lord of worship. And he demonstrates that here by going to the center of Israelite worship. Verse 13 tells us, a few days after the wedding in Cana, he goes to the city of Jerusalem, the heart of Israelite life, the capital city, and at the heart of that city was the temple, the place of worship. And notice, Jesus chooses to go there at the time of the Passover feast, the annual celebration of God's salvation. The Passover commemorated the night before the exodus from Egypt. We thought about it quite recently when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. The Passover, the first Passover, took place about 1,500 years before this point in time that we're looking at. And a few weeks ago, we remembered how the night before God led his people out of their slavery in Egypt, He instructed them to slaughter a lamb and paint some of its blood on their doorposts. Then when God's judgment fell on Egypt, the homes with blood on the doorposts were protected from that judgment. God's judgment didn't fall on them. It passed over them, and the next day they went free. They left Egypt. And here, Jesus chooses to arrive in Jerusalem at the annual celebration of that historic event. So the city is heaving with people. Jesus makes his way to the temple in Jerusalem, the center of all this worship, all this activity, and he says, well done everyone, great worship. No, he doesn't. He turns the place upside down. He kicks them all out. And before we ask why Jesus does that, it's worth just pausing to be clear about what we are seeing from Jesus here. This is not Jesus losing his temper. He is being physically forceful. It's hard to see how you could drive out these animals and people without force. And yes, he doesn't politely ask the money changers to pack up their stuff. He tips their stuff on the floor. 
This incident alone does mean that we're missing a significant part of Jesus if we only think of him as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus is fierce, but he is not cruel. You can see that in a little detail in verse 16. Jesus has driven out the larger animals and the people with his whip. He has overturned the money tables, but he does not overturn the doves in their cages. He says to those selling the doves, get these out of here. This is not out-of-control anger that does harm. Yes, it is forceful, and it is also clear-headed. Jesus is taking deliberate action. He is not going berserk. This is not a tantrum. But having seen that, we still need to ask why Jesus does it. What is it that provokes this fierce and forceful action from him? Well, it is not the mere fact that people are selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and that others are exchanging money. These animals were part of the sacrificial system set up by God. And the temple tax, which was paid by the Jews, had to be paid in a specific currency. The merchants and the money changers are providing a service for people who've come from all over the world to celebrate the Passover. And here in the text, there's no suggestion these merchants and money changers are corrupt in what they're doing. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us about what appears to be a second time Jesus cleared out the temple towards the end of his ministry. And then he does seem to highlight corruption. He speaks about robbers in the temple. But that is not mentioned here. So if what is going on is legitimate, and if there's no obvious corruption involved, why does Jesus react to this the way he does? Well, the answer is at the beginning of verse 14. The beginning of verse 14 tells us all of this business is taking place in the temple courts. The heart of Israel's worship has been invaded by business. In verse 16, Jesus confirms that is the issue. He says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So yes, people did need to get their sacrificial animals from somewhere. Yes, their financial offerings had to be changed into the right currency. And it wasn't wrong for the sellers and the money changers to charge a fee for the services they were providing. What Jesus objects to is the fact that business has invaded the heart of Israel's worship. Business is necessary, but it has no place at the heart of our worship. Our worship of God must never be turned into business. We said at the beginning, the church has trouble agreeing on what worship is. So how about this, for a simple definition we can all agree on. To worship someone or something is to proclaim their worth. 
When we worship God, we are declaring that He is valuable. He's supremely valuable. And how can that happen if the very act of worshiping God has become a business? I think this raises big questions for the Christian worship industry today. Because it's true that worship is big business today. There's big money to be made by selling worship products. Whether it's praise songs or devotional books or sermons online. Now, as I say this, I'm not sure I can offer a good solution to the problem. I love to listen to some of what's produced by the Christian worship industry. I read the occasional book as well. So I can hardly stand here and say we ought to boycott the whole thing. And I understand very well, it is not possible to provide everything for free. But surely, as we watch and listen to Jesus here, we ought to be just a little wary of the worship business. Surely we ought to be just a little concerned when people are making millions by selling worship material. And surely we ought to develop a bit of discernment about how much we rely on worship product ourselves. And maybe as we think about this, it might lead us to set all that to one side a bit more often. The song videos, the devotional podcasts, the inspiring books. Maybe as we think about this, we'll be led to set the product aside or turn it off and just find a quiet place with our Bible where we listen carefully to God's voice in Scripture and respond to Him. Without distraction, without noise, without relying on product that someone else has prepared for us. Now that can be unsettling. When we try to do that, it can actually seem boring at first compared to the worship product that's available for us. 10 or 15 quiet minutes alone with our Bibles can seem like forever. But over time, as we discipline ourselves to do it, it might just lead us to purer worship than when we're relying on product from the worship business. And actually, the issue here is much wider than turning worship into a business. That just happens to be the specific problem here in Jerusalem. The bigger issue is this. What Jesus' actions in the temple show us is that he is fiercely concerned that our worship honors his Father. You look at verse 17. After Jesus has kicked the merchants and their wares out of the temple, verse 17 says, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
That's a quotation from Psalm 69. And it gets to the heart of what is going on here. Zeal is fervent devotion. Passionate devotion. And in Jesus' case, zeal for God's house does not mean I don't want any straw on the floor in here. I don't want any chips in the paintwork in this place. Jesus is not passionate about having a tidy building. Jesus is concerned that the place intended for worship of God is actually a place filled with true worship of God. The reason Jesus made that whip and kicked over those tables is because he burns with zeal for his Father's honor. He is fierce about seeing his Father honored. The introduction to John's gospel told us as the one and only Son of God, Jesus is in the closest relationship with his Father. And it now becomes clear, Jesus is not meek and mild about anything that encroaches on worship of his Father. Or that detracts from worship of his Father. Or pollutes worship of his Father. We've been left in no doubt about how Jesus feels when that happens. And so we need to ask ourselves... Are there things I or you need to look at when it comes to my worship or your worship? Have I been approaching worship as if it's about what I like? Have I been approaching it as if it's about making me feel good? Do I view worship as an emotional fix? For myself. Alternatively, some of us might want to ask, have I been approaching worship as if it's a kind of duty I perform so I can stay on the good side of God? A kind of payment that I make so he keeps on helping me. But don't those approaches to worship actually make me the center of my worship? And isn't that dishonoring to the God I'm supposed to be worshiping? And of course, worship is not just about singing songs. All of our service to God is worship. So then we might want to ask, has my service to God turned into a way to make myself look good? Or to gain a bit of authority and status for myself? That would certainly be dishonoring to God the Father, wouldn't it? If my worship was actually by proclaiming my worth instead of His? Worship is, in fact, about how we live our whole lives. And so we might want to ask ourselves, are there things that I'm involved in? At home, at work, at school things that dishonor the God I claim to belong to. 
And as we watch Jesus here in the temple, showing his fierce concern for his father's honor, we might all want to ask for his help. His help to purify ourselves from every attitude and every action that distracts from his father's honor. And as we meet here to worship each week, we might want to take a moment either either before we leave home or when we take our seat, we might want to take a moment to remember whose worth we are here to proclaim and to set aside anything that gets in the way of that. In fact, that's something we might want to do every morning, no matter where we're going to go that day. Let's do that because we know Jesus is watching. And we know he is still burning with zeal for his Father's honor. In these verses, Jesus has already turned over some tables in Jerusalem. In the second part of the passage, he turns over some more. This time, they're not literal tables. This time he turns over the whole way worship is set up in Israel. After what he's just done, quite understandably, the Jews, probably the leaders of the Jews, they want to know what Jesus' credentials are. And so they say in verse 18, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? The original temple had been built by David's son Solomon, and God himself had designated it as the place of worship. Before the Israelites even entered the land of Canaan, which then became the land of Israel, Before they even entered the land, Moses told them in the book of Deuteronomy, God himself will choose one place as a dwelling for his name. The Israelites were not to try and worship God in any place they chose. God would choose the one place. And eventually he chose Jerusalem. Solomon built the temple there, a luxurious temple, And 1 Kings chapter 8 describes how at the dedication of the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was a visible, awesome thing. God was there. His people could meet him there. And Israel's worship was focused there. It was focused there until generations later, the temple was destroyed and they were taken away into exile. But very significantly, before that temple was destroyed, the prophet Ezekiel saw that same glory of God departing from the temple. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 10. That was an equally awesome sight to the arrival of God's glory but it was also devastating. Because of Israel's rebellion against God over many generations, God eventually 
abandoned his temple. Ezekiel saw that cloud of glory rise above it and disappear off to the hills. And even though when the exile came to an end, it was natural for the Israelites to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they did, but we never hear about God's glory returning there. It never came back. But when we get to the introduction of John's gospel, we read this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What does that have to do with our passage? Well, when we looked at it a few weeks ago, we saw the word dwelling is literally he tabernacled amongst us. The tabernacle was the tent that was used for worship before the temple was built. And the point is, the glory of God that was present in the tent and then in Solomon's temple, that same glory is now present in Jesus. The true successor to the tabernacle and to Solomon's temple is not this rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. The true successor is Jesus himself. The glory of God is to be found in him. He is the place where God is to be worshipped. The one place. And so when Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, verse 21 confirms the temple he had spoken of was his body. Of course, the Jewish leaders don't get it, and even Jesus' disciples don't get it until much later, when he actually is raised from the dead. But it's all here for us to see today. Jesus must be the focus of our worship. He is the ultimate, final, one place chosen by the Father. The one place where the Father is to be worshipped. And what that means is, Jesus didn't come to bring a reformation in the worship of God. He came to bring a revolution. Since Jesus came, there is no special building on this earth that's filled with God's glory. This building is not God's house. Jesus is God's house. In the sense that if we want to worship God, Jesus is the only place we can go to do that. Here the Jewish leaders ask Jesus for a sign, and he doesn't give them one. Instead, he gives them a sign to look out for. It will be the last of the seven signs in this book. It's his resurrection from the dead. On Good Friday, Jesus, God's temple, was destroyed on the cross. He was destroyed by these very same religious leaders who are challenging him now. Jesus, God's temple, was destroyed on the cross, and Jesus, God's temple, was raised again three days later. 
And here, in advance of all of that, Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, when you see that sign, my resurrection, that will be your proof of my authority. That will be your proof that the temple building has served its purpose. And now it is nothing more than a big building. Jesus says, my resurrection will be your proof that I must be the focus of your worship. I am the holy place where men and women and children meet God. In the opening part of this passage, we saw how Jesus is fiercely concerned that our worship honors his Father. And now we can add a crucial detail to that, the crucial detail. Truly worshiping Jesus is how we honor his Father. We simply cannot honor God unless we worship Jesus. We cannot hedge our bets trying to be spiritual without being wholly devoted to Jesus. He is the one place of worship God has chosen. Any religion, any form of spirituality that is not centered on Jesus is offensive to God. No matter how sincerely we go about that religion or that spirituality. Anything that tries to establish a connection with God without going through Jesus, it is dishonoring to the Father who appointed His Son as the one place of worship. Just like in ancient Israel, any worship center on a hill outside of Jerusalem or away from Jerusalem, they were all offensive to God. And the New Testament leaves us no wriggle room with this. It leaves no ambiguity at all. We worship God through Jesus or we are not worshiping God at all. As we noticed earlier, worshiping Jesus means more than singing songs about Jesus. Worship is an everyday, whole life thing. Truly worshiping Jesus means we make him the center of our lives. Just like the temple in Jerusalem was the center of Israelite life. Truly worshiping Jesus means his word has authority over our lives. It has authority over all our decisions and all our relationships. And truly worshiping Jesus means accepting that his sacrifice for sin was enough for our sin. We've been talking this morning about the temple, and at the heart of temple worship was the sacrifice. An animal brought to God who died a bloody death in place of the sinner who brought the sacrifice. And we've noticed at the beginning of this passage, Jesus chose to come and visit Jerusalem at the Passover. The annual feast where the whole focus was on salvation through sacrifice. And then what have we seen Jesus do in the temple? We've seen him make a whip 
and drive all the sacrificial animals out of the temple. He evicted them. And yes, he did it to show that business has no place in the temple. But surely he was also showing, just as the old temple has had its day, the old sacrifices have too. Surely in driving those animals out, Jesus was demonstrating that he's the only sacrifice. A few days before, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And now Jesus underlines the point. The other lambs are free to go and frolic on the hills. They can chase their tails all day. Those lambs have no more part to play in the big story of God's salvation. And so what that means for us today is truly worshiping Jesus means accepting that his sacrifice was enough to pay for your salvation. If you're trying to pay for your own salvation by offering your own sacrifices of good deeds or charitable contributions or whatever, that will get you nowhere. And trying to get somewhere with our own sacrifices is dishonoring to God the Father. Why does it dishonor Him when we try to do that? Well, because the Father has already accepted Jesus' death on the cross as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. It's time to stop focusing your hope for salvation on your own efforts. Focus your hope on Jesus instead. And if you're a fearful Christian, if you're always doubting whether God really loves you and really accepts you, then it's time to worship Jesus by believing God's word. His word that Jesus' sacrifice was the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. That it most certainly paid for your sin in full. And because of Jesus, God loves you and welcomes you as his own beloved child. Worship Jesus by believing he has done all that needed to be done for you. In a moment, we're going to do that quietly and personally, or we will have opportunity to do that as we take the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, let's worship Jesus together. Let's give thanks for him together as we sing, See Him in Jerusalem.
This morning we've seen that Jesus is the temple of